All right, listeners, welcome back to that anthro podcast. Today we have Dr. Kate Colpan, uh, an assistant professor at the University of Idaho, here to speak with us today. So welcome, Kate. And if you could just briefly introduce your area of research, that would be wonderful. Sure. Hello. Hi, Gabriella. Hello, everybody out in podcast land. Um, hi, my name is Dr. Kate Colpan. I'm, as you've said, an assistant professor at the University of Idaho. I am both a bioarchaeologist and a forensic anthropologist, and sometimes I combine those two things in my research. So I've done a lot of um, research that would be more classified as maybe historical bioarchaeology. So I did my PhD work looking at soldiers who perished in the Second World War, who probably fought, well, no, definitely fought for the Axis powers as opposed to the Allies, which is its own sort of kettle of fish. And uh, I looked at the connection between violence and where those people come from and sort of the politics of trying to do those kinds of identifications. And then I also have done some work in the Americas. So my master's work is on the Americas and that was looking at the relationship between um, sort of health and activity patterns. And then I'm doing a project right now on the Bulgarian Black Sea Coast. I run a field school there uh, that's looking at the integration of migration and assimilation and the potential for violence among colonists at Apollonia Pontica, which was a 7th through 4th century BC or 3rd century BC um, polis on the Black Sea coast, and then also looking at how that connects to the Roman colony that came later about 30 miles away at the Altum, which was also founded by foreign veterans from the Roman Legion. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to diving into all of that in the podcast. Um, I have was really enjoying reading over um, some of your work and just like your CV because you've done a lot of really fascinating things, especially your work with um, formerly JPAC, now DPAA, that I'm really excited to talk about because that is somewhere that I've always really admired the work that they do. And I've never actually had the time or the opportunity to really in-depth talk with someone about that work. So I'm really excited. But one of like the first questions that I always like to ask people, because I think it kind of really sets the tone for their journey is what drew you to anthropology? Was it a class, a movie, a topic, a book? I kind of came to this in a really sort of roundabout way. Mm. Um, I, I've always been an anthropologist, right? Like I, I went to college for anthropology. I'm not one of those people who switched majors. I went to grad school both times for anthropology. So it sounds like it's not a roundabout way, but it kind of is a weird roundabout way. Um, so when I was in college, I actually thought I was going to be a paleontologist. Hmm. So more like the dinosaur part of what people do, right? So you constantly as an archaeologist get asked about dinosaurs or Indiana Jones, one of the two. And yes. I do know quite a lot about dinosaurs. And so when I was in college, I was more focused, I went to NYU, which is way more focused on sort of paleobiology and human evolutionary theory. And so I learned a lot of that. And I did a paleobiology independent study with um, the advisor of the person who eventually became my PhD advisor. Just That was just a random coincidence. <laughs> and I really thought that that was what I was gonna do. And then my senior year of college, Susan Anton moved to NYU when I was a junior and I needed somebody to help me with my undergraduate honors thesis, which I didn't know I was eligible for until I got back. I'd been in England and 
I had like a year to do this whole thing because I graduated early and she didn't know me at all. It was her first semester. And I knocked on the door and was just basically like, hi, we don't really know each other, but my interest is in bones and osteology and, and those kinds of things. Would you be my master's, sorry, would you be my honors thesis advisor? And she very graciously said yes, even though she did not know me from a hole in the wall. <laughs> and I took two classes from her, one of which was fossil evidence for human evolution and one of which was forensic anthropology, which was literally my last semester of college. And I was like, this is so cool, man. I still love bones so much. And this would be such an interesting thing to do, but I didn't necessarily pursue it immediately. And I went home, I graduated early and I went home and I did a, I did a, a like a paleontology geology type course for invertebrate paleontology. I had done, um, I had done an internship with the paleontologist at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, cause that's where I'm from the year before for the summer. I took this invertebrate paleontology class and hated everything about it. Just hated everything about it. I hate invertebrates. I think they're interesting, but I just don't care all that much. They also don't have the same body plan. So like vertebrates, you take Zoar, if you're like, okay, there's modification, but everything with a backbone has the same bow plan, right? Like it has the yeah. same body plan. Invertebrates do not work this way. And I'm not a good enough geologist to care about a lot of these things is what I learned. And then, so I was like, man, I have to rethink my life plan. Like I like, I like paleobio. I love fossil hominins, but I, this, I got to rethink my life plan. And so I really loved osseo. Yeah. And I talked to my undergrad advisor and a couple of other people and said, you know what, I'm going to apply to graduate school and hopefully I get in somewhere. And I did. And so I went to Chico State and the rest of it is just history from there. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm from California. So I saw, I was like, oh, Chico State, like I know the program, you know, more so than other programs. I know that it is a really great program for, for that, especially now that you're saying, oh, I was just kind of hoping to get in somewhere. You definitely landed at a good spot for, for forensics. What was the transition like? going I mean it's not too much of a transition because you're still in like the natural sciences I think the thing that I struggled with the most is that I had really come from a very very bio heavy program and I had done less archaeology because at the time I didn't wasn't my interest and so I felt like I had to do a little catch up on that so I think the thing that was the hardest for me was just sort of learning or being expected to know the ins and outs of arc theory when mm. I didn't really. Yeah. And I caught up with it and it was fine. And then later on, when I was in my PhD program, Florida has a very, very intensive arc theory course that you are required to take if you are an archaeologist of any form. And that includes all of the bioarchaeologists in my lab. And that really solidified my sort of area of interest in mm-hmm. theory. I don't think I'm a particularly great theorist, but I I can I can work with it. I know my way around it. I understand why it's important. And yeah. so I think that was actually one of the benefits of going to graduate school is I had come in and I was very processional, I think very like here's 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 the hypothesis and here's how you test that hypothesis and here's the result. And that's fine, but it's not particularly insightful if you don't put it in any form of context and you have no theoretical orientation for it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the thing I had to play catch up with the most. 
Um, and also just grad school is very, very rigorous. Yeah. Which I think is hard for lots of people. Having done grad school in two different institutions, both of which were academically very, very challenging, I I think it actually makes me a better professor because I teach graduate students, right? I, own, I have my own graduate students. And I think it makes you more empathetic, right? You know what it's like to be them. Also, I haven't been a professor all that long. So I, you know, I remember what grad school was like. And, you know, I don't want to fall into this trap of, you know, this was what it was like for me. So therefore, this is what it must be like for you. And, you know, assume that everybody's mental health will be fine all the time and that they have nothing outside of graduate school going on. Because that can be really demoralizing, right? And we want you to stay in school, right? Yes. We want you to get the most out of this. Mm -hmm. I think having really good mentorship was very key to my development as an anthropologist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How long have you been at the University of Idaho? I've been at the university for four and a half years. Okay. This and when did you start taking on grad students? Immediately. Okay. I think that's so, a bit like untraditional. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. But I am the only biological anthropologist in my department. So, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, I started, I, I actually inherited a graduate student, which is why I started immediately. I don't feel like I was pushed to take graduate students. Let me be very clear. Um, so I took a student who um, their advisor had retired mm -hmm. and they had sort of been a bit adrift because of that, because their interest was in what I do. And one of the things that I was asked while I was, while we were negotiating my job was about this particular student. And so I actually took that student with me when I was in Germany uh, the summer before as like part of their, let's figure out what it is you want to do with this and what you want to do with the rest of your life. So I started pretty much from the get-go. I've always had graduate students. I have five or six of them right now. And are those PhD or master's students? They're master's students. So okay. we, we do things a little bit differently. So we have a master's program, um, which is specifically an anthropological master's program. And we're pretty good about funding our master's students actually, mm. which is nice. Yeah. And Where's, um, listen up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we are pretty, we, we try to fund everybody. We can't promise anything, but we do try to fund everyone. Uh, and then we do have a PhD program, but you have to apply through the history department. So the history department has two tracks. There's a straight history track, and then there's a historical archaeology track. If you do the historical archaeology track, then one of the people in anthropology 
is your major professor, mm. right? That person who becomes your advisor or your chair. So right now I don't have any PhD students. Assuming things work out in the ways that I'm hoping, I will have one next year. Okay. So there, so there's the potential people can come and work with me for PhDs, but they have to apply in a different way just mm. because this is how things are run for us. We're mostly a historics department. That's what we're known for. So. Got it. Well, that's really interesting. And yeah, I always, I like to always point out to the listeners, you know, who may be accepting students, who's not accepting students, because there are a lot of listeners that are um, kind of in that application phase of, of their career where they're, or they're thinking about it down the road in the next coming years. So it's, you know, I mean, I remember sending out emails and just so many people aren't accepting students. And so it's kind of like a good thing. I never, like, I always have realized, oh, that's a good thing to kind of identify with these awesome professors that I interview. It seems like your mentality for that is, is really good because you brought up like, oh, just because my master's experience was one way or my PhD experience was one way, it shouldn't necessarily have to be the same for, um, my students. I think that's a really important philosophy to have, you know, being in a master's program myself right now. Um, I do think sometimes there is a, t- a tendency to, to give more work when I think a little bit less could be better to produce better product. Like for example, whether that's giving four readings instead of five per week. So then we have more engagement with the four readings that are assigned. Um, that's just kind of personally how, how I've felt. Um, and I think it's interesting to hear someone who's, who's younger, who's, um, as you were saying, remembers grad school is, is still very much in the mindset of being able to empathize with the students, hearing how that, um, impacts the way that you design your curriculum and the expectations that you have for your graduate students. I, this is actually something that I care a lot about. Um, so I, like at my institution before this one, I've run forums on this is how you apply to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Because I actually think there are quite a lot of students who have no idea how they're supposed to apply to graduate school. I mean, yes. even when I look at graduate school applications, um, there are just things that, you know, if you, particularly if you're a first generation college student, you just don't know. So like, we'll get every once in a while, we'll get recommendations or something like that, where the the recommenders aren't appropriate, or, you know, or the student has written something that's not as useful to them as it should be. And so I, we've done, um, my colleagues here are like that too. They care about these kinds of things. And so I think it's actually really important to sort of like, run a forum or sit down with your students and say, okay, you're applying to graduate school. Here are the things. Or like, yeah. if you write, if you're writing your statement, do you want me to read it? Mm-hmm. And the answer should always be, yes, you want me to read it. And cause I'll edit it for them and ask questions and say, okay, you, you've told me what you've done, but you haven't told me what you want to do, or you told me what you want to do, but you haven't told me anything about your background. And so the person reading this doesn't know that, you know, you've done two field schools and you've worked with one of us in labs and like all of those things are important. And yes, they might show up on your CV, which by the way, let's talk about how CVs work and that they're not resumes and, yes. you know, just things like that. I've also run a jobs forum. I ran a jobs forum at SAA a couple of years ago, and it was specifically designed to address academic job market and then also professional market. 
because they're so different. And everybody in that forum that I ran with two friends of mine who are also younger bioarchaeologists, and it was specifically for bioarchaeologists who were trying to get jobs because we go to these forums and they're really, really great, but they're designed for general archaeology. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit different. Yeah. And so we were like, let's just make a forum for bioarchaeology, right? We've all just been on the job market. We know exactly what we what we found, sort of like the things that we did that were terrible, like the mistakes that we made, the things that we did that we thought were really good, um, the things that we were told helped us get a job. <laughs> and yeah. so we built, we, we put together this forum, that forum, every single person in that forum had gotten their job within the last five years. That's so important because it does change so much within five to 10 years. It does. And I got a lot of advice that was incredibly well-meaning when I was on the job market, but didn't actually apply anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we tried very, very hard to bring in people where like they had gotten their jobs in the last pretty much five years. Yeah. And then we had one person who was like the elder statesman on the forum who could speak, who had gotten their job quite a long time ago, um, who could speak to things like, okay, this is what hiring committees do. Mm, yeah. And so, so there was like a good mix. And so it was a mix of acad- straight up academics, museum people, and then professional people, right? People who did things like work for CRM firms. Yeah. Because not everybody who, not even people with PhDs, not everybody is going to want, you know, to be a professor. No, I would love it if we could all be professors, but there's just not enough jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard too, because, and I know that you were just talking to someone that I know about this, which is like, if your advisor has only ever done academics, they can't necessarily advise you on the professional market, um, things that they haven't had experience with. Again, not that they don't want to, just that if they haven't had experience with that. So I think that's so important. And I'm I'm so jealous that I didn't get to attend that because as someone who's going to be going on the job market in like eight months, I mean, that sounds wonderful. So I really kind of, I, I have a PowerPoint. That. It's floating around somewhere. Let me be very clear. That forum is not all me, right? That, that forum I worked with very closely with a couple of very good friends of mine who helped me do it. And uh, most of the people who are in the forum are people I know who are lovely enough to donate their time to it. It was fun to do. And it's actually just like something very near and dear to my heart because I want everybody to be successful at this. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, and, and getting a job is super nerve wracking, right? It's oh, so hard. It is. And you spend so much time, even though you know you know what you're doing, feeling like you have either no idea what you're doing or that you're a terrible imposter and why would anyone ever hire you? Yeah. You know, I've blown, I've blown interviews before. Trust me, I can I'm very vividly in my head remembering like an interview that I just tanked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just tanked it. It was the final interview and I tanked it. But I've also had interviews where I did great, right? And so you just have to remember all of the things. So I want to dive into your PhD topic. It was entitled Science in International Memory Politics, Isotope Analysis and Identification of the Human Remains of World War II Combatants in the Balkans. Um, And you kind of introduced that in in, in the first couple minutes of this podcast. But I would love to begin our discussion about this with... um, how that kind of came on your radar, how that was something you decided you wanted to study. And then we can kind of dive into like generally what the DPAA is, because I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast. Okay. Um, so my PhD, welcome to the wonderful world of networking is important. Yes. So 
I know we've had these conversations many, many times with students. I know that being at conferences is uncomfortable and that talking to people you don't know is scary. Trust me, I have been told I am good at it. <laughs> but I feel like I am one of those people who's just faking their way through because they like other people. Like, I'm genuinely interested in what it is you are doing, mm -hmm. which is nice. But I am also terrified to talk to you. So I, I get it, right? I get the anxiety of yeah. going up and talking to people that you don't know, even in informal settings. Mm -hmm. But so many of the things that have happened to me in my life that are related to my professional career come out of random conversations with people that I have met throughout my career because they knew my master's advisor or knew my PhD advisor or we struck up a conversation about something or I wanted to ask a question. And so networking as much as it is uncomfortable is important. I agree. And that is a long-winded way of getting to how did this happen to me? Mm -hmm. Well, because it is a random thing to study. It's really, really cool, but a random thing to study. Yeah. This happened to me because I met someone who was a friend of my master's advisor previous to the conversation that he and I had that became my PhD dissertation. So he and I already knew each other. And he doesn't come to the AFS meetings very often. He happened to be at the meetings. He knew I was in graduate school. He knew I was doing some isotope work. He, I don't think he knows my PhD advisor, but is probably aware of his work. And he and I got to talking about something else that involved isotopes and tracing people who die in these kinds of circumstances, actually more about Iraq than about Ooh. Germany. And at the time, uh, he worked for the ICMP, for the International Commission on Missing Persons. And we were sort of, we were talking at a poster session, actually, for the AFS. The AFS, for those of you who don't know, is the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Uh, the anthropologists who are forensics people go to that meeting every year because it's where most of us meet up with each other to hear about everybody's work. And I was at, I was at that meeting where I'm just having a conversation about, like, what you could and couldn't do about this for something else at this poster session. And then that continued with the people that we knew at the bar. And he said, I have a whole bunch of what the Bosnians are claiming are dead German soldiers from the Second World War that were exhumed when people were looking for the remains of their loved ones during the Bosnian conflicts after the 90s. So most of these people were found in the early, like late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't, once they had exhumed them, they couldn't rebury them. So they were being curated by the, in the repositories by NGOs in the Bosnian government. And they were curious about whether or not isotope analysis, um, along with osteology, would help them figure out whether or not these people were local so that they could be returned. Because mm -hmm. at the time, they were pretty convinced that none of these people, since they're all Axis powers, right, they all fought for the Third Reich, um, were probably not locals mm -hmm. and so they were just trying to come up with ways to say okay we'd like to give them back to the federal republic of germany or we'd like to give them back to austria or we'd like to give them back to the italians if they happen to be italian at the time it was mostly germans but that's where all this came from mm -hmm. i actually thought i was going to do my dissertation on something completely different because most of what i had worked on before that was 
um, Indigenous North America. And I had actually written, this was originally, my PhD dissertation was originally a side project based upon my own interests. Mm-hmm. And I had actually written a much more bio, like straight up bioarchaeological um, proposal. Like the whole proposal was done. It was in my advisor's hands. It was 20 yeah. some pages. And he and I were talking about this side project of mine. And he was like, why don't you just do that for your dis? It combines everything you like. You're looking at violence. You're looking at migratory patterns. You you like modern things. Like, why not just do this? And I was like, well, I don't know if I could do that for my dissertation. And so I emailed the person that I was collaborating with and said, my advisor wants to know if I can do this for my dissertation. I didn't want to say yes, unless I could. And he said, I don't see why not, as long as we get permissions. So that is how I ended up doing that. Wow. Because it's basically just everything I love all in one package. And it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And that's really how, how it should be, you know, for picking something that you're going to spend. I mean, I'm not, everyone's PhD uh, timeline is different, but you know, around five years, you know, doing your work on it, it should be something that really combines all of your interests rather than for, you know, settling for something that's, that's not. Um, And think about that's actually a piece of advice I give my students all the time, pick something that you're still going to like when you're finished. I mm -hmm. still like my master's work. Yeah. Right. I did my master's umpteen hundred years ago and I still like it. And I still think it's interesting. And I still talk about that kind of work. And so, and that, by the way, came out of a two-hour conversation with my master's advisor based on an offhand comment he made. Hmm. So you never know what's going to inspire you, but pick things that are interesting that you like. My PhD work, I could talk about it all day. I would bore you to tears (laughs) (laughs) and because I'm fascinated by it. Because of my family's history, I'm so confused and appalled by Hitler and Nazism. And Mm. so it was a really strange position to be in to like study these these kinds of things and look at like, okay, where are the political pitfalls for this? How does this all fit together? Is this part of the forensic turn, which is its own thing in forensic anthropology? Um, And, you know, how does this fit into a lot of our theories about the agency of dead people Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I got to, I got to explore a lot of different things because bodies like that are incredibly politically potent. Very true. Very true. Yeah. So when it comes to the actual data collection, um, did you travel to go collect data? Um, and if so, how was, uh, what was the funding like for that? Okay. So... <laughs> I um, I lived in Germany at one point, and I lived in Bosnia at one point during my PhD work. So I spent a summer in Bosnia. Um, I got money from, I basically applied for a small grant from my institution that paid for me to be there. And I also got paid to learn, I got paid to learn, I got a FLAS, a, a Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship for two different languages. One for Bosnian during the summer, and because it was for Bosnia during the summer, I got to go to Bosnia to do that. So I was already in Sarajevo, which made it easier for me to like, A, I needed the language. And B, also, I was already there and it was paid for so I could do my other work there because it's part of the area studies part of my PhD. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened for German. I got uh, got a class for two years toward the end of my PhD to help me learn German because of a lot of the documents I needed to read and a lot of the books I needed to read were in German. By the way, I don't think my German is particularly good, but I can begin enough in it. Um, 
And so I went to Germany for one for a year. Uh, no, not for a year, for like part for like a semester, basically like one of their semesters, which would have been our summer because of the way that uh, this shakes out. And uh, talked to some people there and went to some archives that were important for just learning about potential troop movements and units in that part of Bosnia that we think these people were recovered from. So I mm -hmm. did do a bunch of traveling in a more roundabout way. There are better ways to get funded for this. Yeah. Um, but I'm very lucky that I was funded for it the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I'm also really lucky that I got to travel. And in terms of taking my samples and going over the individuals, I went to Bosnia to look at them. They were not sent to me. I picked all of my own. Um, I got to pick where I sampled from and what I sampled, which was very important to me. Because mm -hmm. when you do isotope analysis, some portions of the skeleton are just better than others. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be issues depending upon, for example, which kind of teeth you take. Mm -hmm. and the preservation and where they are in the mouth mm -hmm. and I was interested in something specific so I wanted pretty much if I possibly could only third molars okay and what isotope tests were you running so I do um I do mostly heavy isotopes which I'll explain what those are in a second okay. um as opposed to like stable light, light isotopes but I did both so I did strontium analysis and lead analysis and which are both heavy isotope analysis um, and then I did um, oxygen and carbon as well, because I was looking mostly at migration. Yeah. And when you look at migration, it's not as helpful to look at what people eat, though it definitely can be depending upon the situation. So for example, there's a couple of very good papers um, that were written by people who work with the DPAA about looking at diet for Southeast Asian populations who eat mostly um things that photosynthesize with a C3 photosynthetic pathway, which shows up differently isotopically than photosynthesis, photosynthesis with C4 photosynthetic pathways, which is mostly like maize and other tropical grasses, which grow much better in the Americas. Yeah. Uh, and then C3 are things like rice, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple of very good papers that look at sectioning points that basically break off. These people are probably Southeast Asian and these people are probably uh, Europeans. Which is very useful if you're looking at something like, is this are the remains of this person that supposedly died in the Vietnam War local to Vietnam or are they potentially European foreign combatants? So you can use that. wasn't as helpful for me, so I didn't use that. So I didn't do any. For example, I did do nitrogen analysis. Um, and so mostly looking at migration because we were trying to figure out are these guys local. Yeah. Are they foreigners? If they're foreigners, are they all German? Because that was the original hypothesis i had like one null hypothesis which was basically like the isotopes don't tell us anything and we can't tell any difference between any of these people and then i had a several um alternative hypotheses the first one which was everybody's german the second one was everybody's italian uh because there were italian troops in that part of southeastern europe at the time um or in that part of the balkans and then uh, everybody's Austrian because we knew a lot of the commanders from World War One had actually served in the Balkans. Mm. And so because they were Austro-Hungarian and uh, so they had actually gone back there. And then the last one was it's a mix of everybody, which is probably what it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for breaking that breaking that down. Um, I think it's really interesting to 
to learn about this. This is definitely like a, a type of topic I've never, you know, encountered. So I'm really like both for the listeners and for me, I'm like, oh, this is exciting for me too. Um, so I, well, you know, I was reviewing your, your CV and I see that, and please correct me um, if I'm not putting the puzzle pieces together correctly, but the work with um, the connection with the DPAA came in through the Forensic Science Academy Fellowship. Okay. Awesome. Glad I'm on the right track. Okay. So you get that. Okay. We'll just start by introducing what the DPAA does. Um, it's the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, formerly the formerly JPAC, the Joint POW MIA Accounting Center. Command. Command. I was like, what's the C for? Because I didn't write it out. No, um, it's command. Because remember, it's a military organization. Yes. So yes, it is a military organization. Um, so if you could kind of talk about the role of bioarchaeologists and archaeologists within that organization, and then we can specifically talk about how you partnered with them for your PhD and currently. <laughs> okay. So I didn't, I'm, I'm going to caveat. I yes. didn't do any work with them for my actual PhD work. Oh, I work got with it. the ICMP. I work for the, with the International Commission on Missing Persons who were incredibly lovely to me and gave me a lot of help. So I really, really appreciate working with them. They're an international organization, like an NGO. And uh, they do a lot of, they're they're basically in charge of all of the analysis now for attempting to find everybody who died in Bosnian War. So they do, for example, all of the DNA analysis. Oh, great. The people who perished there. Yeah. So they, they were, they were responsible, for example, for trying to help identify all of the people who've died in the Srebrenica massacre, which is mm. the, the most widely cited massacre. There's over 8,000 people who died in that massacre, almost 9,000 actually. Um, and so they're incredibly lovely to me. Here is my association with the DPAA. So the DPAA, as you mentioned, is the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. I have done contract work with them. I've never worked for them. Got it. I have been a fellow in their fellowship program and I have done contract work with them, but I have never directly worked for them. I was never one of their direct employees. So I feel like that's important to state just for the purposes of professionalism and accuracy. Mm -hmm. They are a military organization. So they are part of the Department of Defense. So they're part of the US military. And what their mandate is for is they are in charge of identifying every service person, mostly servicemen, just because they're dealing with past conflicts, who dies in a past military conflict who can be identified, right? Sometimes you're gonna deal with situations where people cannot be identified, right? So for example, there are quite a lot of missing persons from the Second World War. They have, the Second World War has the largest proportion of missing and unidentified for any foreign war involving Americans. Um, the last I checked, it was about 78,000 people. It might be a little less now. Some of those people will never be recovered. And the reason they'll never be recovered is because they were on things like battleships that sunk into the ocean and they're too far down. Mm. So divers can't safely dive to where they are or because organizations that are related to them or families that are related to them have specifically asked that their graves not be disturbed. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so that organization, they're an incredible organization. They, um, they are responsible for trying to find and identify the remains of U.S. service personnel who die in past foreign conflicts. 
and they go all over the place, right? So for example, they've done, um, they've done missions in Greenland. Wow. <laughs> Which is not a place that you would expect to find human remains for American service personnel. No. Uh, they go all over Southeast Asia because it's quite difficult, as you can imagine, to go to um, heavily forested and tropical uh, small islands in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. They're mostly looking, in that case, they're mostly looking for World War II soldiers, right? People who got shut down. Mm -hmm. um, or died on beaches or buried by their colleagues who were never recovered. Um, I I helped run a mission that was in Germany. So mm. we were in East Germany looking for the remains of one guy. Wow. And yeah, in a lot of these cases, these are um these are either small planes that have a small number of individuals on them, or only have one or two missing personnel because everyone is bailed out of the plane, or um might be single burials. So in this case, this was a single burial mask. This was a single burial grave uh, for someone where everyone else in their plane was recovered in the 1940s and they weren't. Mm. And so I basically ended up doing, like ended up with this association because as you noted, I was a forensic science academy fellow, which was a fellowship program that they used to run through, um, through ORISE, which is through the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And uh, you would go for basically what it amounts to a semester. You start in August, you end in, uh, you end around Christmas. And I, you would go and you would learn everything about their lab and you would do a bunch of the um, basically competency testing that they would do if you were a new employee, right? So like you have to do a mock forensic case, an FAR, forensic anthropology report, and hand it in. And then you get critiqued on it, which is really, really helpful. And it just makes you a better anthropologist, but it's very intense. Mm. And then the other part of the training is that they are supposed to send you out on a mission with another, with a with a much more experienced forensic anthropologist who is helping to run that mission, mm -hmm. who is their recovery scene expert. And you go where they're going. Usually you go to Vietnam. Mm. And uh, so they send you to Vietnam. And so I get to go to Vietnam and Thailand as part of that. Wow. What the funny thing is, I was in Cambodia when I found out I got that fellowship. Oh, that is interesting. <laughs> I, my husband and I were in a hotel room and I was like, oh, I guess I'm coming back here in two months. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was incredible. It was an amazing opportunity. Like it was, it was an amazing opportunity. I feel very, very fortunate to have done that. It taught me a lot. Yeah. I, it taught me a lot about myself as a person. It taught me a lot about myself as a researcher. Um, it taught me a lot about how laboratories work and I got to, I got to be mentored by a lot of really incredible forensic anthropologists and archeologists, uh, some of whom I'm, I'm still being mentored by. Yeah. Um, and the archeology span point of that. So there are several people who work for DPA. Some of them are straight forensics people. A lot of them are bioarchaeologists mm -hmm. because they have training in both things. So mm -hmm. I have several friends who either have worked for them or currently work for them who their training is in bioarchaeology. Sometimes it's in both. Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's in straight up bioarchaeology because their osteological training is really, really good. Yeah. And the other half of what they do. So they have osteologists who um, sometimes go in the field, depends on sort of their, um, how they're hired through the DPA. Um, so there are, there are anthropologists who go in the field. There are also anthropologists who are just lab people who um, work on specific projects. And 
they do all of the identifications, right? So like remains come in, they're they're shipped in from um from an excavation, and then they're they're assigned to an anthropologist who does an entire um forensic anthropology report on them. And then they're also usually sent out for DNA and all of those things, right, are supposed to support each other for mm-hmm. positive identification. Cause the worst thing you can do is think you have a positive ID and misidentify the person mm-hmm. because then you're contacting a military family, someone who potentially might have been missing for 70 some years, right? So like we, the, the remains that we recovered from Germany, we can talk about them now because they've been repatriated or otherwise I would never mention them. <laughs> um, they, they went back to the family. That family had been looking for that, that individual for, you know, 70 yeah. some years. Mm-hmm. And so the worst thing you can do is say you found, we found your loved one and then have it not be that person. So they're mm-hmm. very, very good at like double and triple and quadruple checking to make sure they have the right ID before they tell anybody. Yeah. And so DNA is a part of that. They're also, they also use a lot of other methods. So osteologists, a lot of these little forensic anthropologists who are hired are osteologists, that's what they do. And then the other half of this are is the archaeology unit. And so there are archaeologists who also work for them who are in charge of those excavations. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the person going out who's the recovery scene expert is an archaeologist. Sometimes they're a bioarchaeologist. Sometimes they're a forensics person. But there is an archaeology unit who helps plan all of these missions, mm. right? Have to, there's a lot of planning that goes into dropping someone off, dropping a team of you know military personnel off in the middle of the jungle in you know Vietnam or Laos or uh, yeah. or Papua New Guinea or Vanuatu, yeah. all of which are places that the DPA goes. So these missions have to be planned really, really to the T, basically. And then some of them also require extra training. So I know somebody who does a bunch of um a bunch of these missions that are on the sides of mountains because they have their mountain climber. I as someone I'm close to um used to do missions for them that were all underwater. Mm right? Working with things that were shallow coastal waters because that, and that is very different, like underwater emissions are very, very different. Um, And then these, these, so the archaeological missions are planned. You go out there usually for somewhere between 30 and 60 days, though this has all changed a whole lot now, right? I don't work for them organically. So all of this changes all the time. So I certainly don't want to speak for them. If you are used to what used to be called a recovery leader or anthropologist, but is now a, a SRE, um, senior researcher, uh, or scientific recovery expert. Um, you don't, if you, if you recover remains, right, if you do the excavation and you recover remains, you are not part of the team that identifies the person or tries to identify the person. Mm. And it's so that it doesn't introduce bias. That's really interesting. Because the people who run those recovery teams know everything about the person that they're looking for. Yeah. Right. There are dossiers and information with informants. So uh, there are incredible historians and linguists and a whole team that does things that just does um, earlier um, in earlier investigations into like how feasible these missions are. And they they'll do things like interview local people. We, there was a plane crash at this time. Does anyone remember when this happened? Oh yeah, um, we know people who saw this. You could go talk to X, Y, and Z person. If you're doing a recovery mission, like the one we did in Germany in 2019, we knew everything about this person, right? I knew I was looking for a 20-year-old white male mm-hmm. and I knew where he was from. I knew what he looked like. Mm-hmm. And so it's just too easy to introduce bias mm-hmm. because you already know 
who you're supposed to be looking for. And so it's much easier to assign, right, to assign that case to somebody totally different. So like that case, we I actually know the person who worked on that case, um, just because forensics is a very small field. It is. <laughs> and so we found out we had we had been, you know, Dr. Nick Pasolacqua and I ran this mission. He was the he was the team leader on it. Um we found out later, like much later after the remains were already identified, that the person who did the identifications is someone that he knew from undergrad and I knew from grad school. Hmm. So it's, you know, it's a very small group, but like, that's how, that's how everything works. I'm, I'm making it simpler than it actually is. It's a very complicated process yeah. and uh, it requires a lot of training and skill. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very, um, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've been given with them. I think they're an incredible organization. And I think the people who work for them are really good at their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I really appreciate like you going in depth because there are some of that, like I, I didn't know. And, and I've done a lot of research because once upon a time, I thought I wanted to work for them. Had, had some association with them versus like reading about them. Cause yeah. it doesn't, it's, it's harder to convey what they do though. I do yeah. think people have done a very good job of trying. Yeah. Um, but I will say if you, if you are interested in working for the DPAA, talk to somebody who works for the DPAA. That's the best way to figure out if this yeah. would be for you because they're really good at that. They also run um, recruiting booths. So they run a recruiting booth at the American Academy of Forensic Science meetings, for example. They'll also run one at SAA. Mm, okay. They run one at SAA every single year. So the Society for American Archaeology for people who are new to this idea or anybody who's not an, an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the biggest society for North American archaeologists. They have a meeting every year. It's usually in March or April. Mm-hmm. They the it's, DPA, it's in April this year. It's in New Orleans this year. I know. Everybody's going to get their Mardi Gras beads on. I know. But, <laughs> I, I had to pick between that and AABAs, and I ended up picking AABAs because that's where my advisor is going, and then I have family in California, but I have to say I'm a little bit heartbroken that I couldn't afford to go to both. Yeah, I mean, that's always the problem is meetings are expensive and mm-hmm. it's harder being a graduate student for sure. I yeah. I might end up going to both. I try to go to I try to go to all three every year and it's so difficult because it's so many meetings and they're all they're all in the spring. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot yes, of they are. Away. Um but yeah, so DPAA always tries to run a booth at SAAs. So if this is something that you're interested in, or you just want to talk to them about what they do, and you should definitely talk to people who work for them permanently. <laughs> I also, I ran a partner mission with them. Partner missions are contract missions. They're basically, they they contact people who they think have particular types of expertise that they think would be useful um, and then run contract missions with them. So like Chico has run contract missions with them before, for example. Dr. Pasolacqua and I have run a contract mission with them um, through West, Western Carolina, where he works. Um, there's a there's a couple of people who do field schools through them. And most of those missions, as far as I know, are in Europe. Interesting. Um, so you brought up field schools. I think that's a good transition into um, something, a piece that I read by you. Um, it was an article that was published in the um, a twenty sorry a twenty twenty two article that was published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, where you were talking about um, uh, kind of a specific model for forensic archaeological field pro- projects and how those can be improved for for students, um, but also just the wor- the work being done in general. 
So in that, uh, you were arguing that uh, if students are paid to be field technicians for a field school, it's not only beneficial for increasing student exper experience for students that might not be able to otherwise afford an expensive international field school, but also for the work in general and for the field in general in training better, better archaeologists and in this case forensic anthropologists. So I was hoping we could kind of talk a bit more about that project, but also um, this model that you argued for um, and your experience implementing it. Yeah, so that that article is about high impact practice. Um, mm -hmm. High impact practices are educational practices that are designed to give students practical experiences because originally employers basically went to colleges and said, you know, we're getting all these kids who are really smart, but they don't actually have any practical experience and they're not prepared for the job market. Mm -hmm. And so there are several different kinds of high impact practice, most of which you probably are aware of, but don't realize are high impact practices. So these can be things like study abroads, um, working with a professor on a research project uh, or lab-based methods, um, experiences, small group work, et cetera. There are about eight of them, eight to 10, depending upon who you're talking to. And so we had couched this under sort of like, this is the kind of high impact practice for both undergraduate and graduate students. Why? Because when you apply to graduate school or when you're trying to get a job, you have to have some sort of practical field experience. And this has been a stumbling block for a lot of people in the field because field programs cost money, right? I run one that's run on a more traditional model. We're trying to figure out a way to make it less expensive right now. It's still one of the cheaper programs in Europe, to be honest. There are ways that we have made it less expensive for students, but it's still expensive for students. And the issue with that is that it makes the field harder to get into for certain people mm -hmm. because when you go to apply for a job or when you go to apply for a master's program or a PhD program, they look at this and go, you don't have any practical experience. You've never been on a dig before, which can be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so there are quite a lot of people who are much smarter than I who have written about this, who basically have said, you know, this, this perpetuates having, you know, candidly European middle class to wealthy students progress in archaeology at the expense of first-gen students, mm -hmm. um, students with socioeconomic disadvantages, and then also minoritized students. Mm -hmm. And those are people that we need desperately in archaeology. <laughs> we need yes, them in forensic yeah. anthropology too, and, and in forensic archaeology. And so making these kinds of things more affordable is useful. We presented one model, which was a contract model where we built in money, right? When we rewrote a grant, basically, to the DPAA, said we would like this amount of funding. We're here's what it's for. And they very nicely said, okay. <laughs> and in that kind of funding, we paid our we paid our personnel who are mostly students. They were either students or former students of ours field technicians, right? We basically use the same modeling system as the federal government, right? We're looking at the GS system 
and which is the system the federal government uses to decide how to pay archaeologists and archaeological technicians. And so we paid them like they were GS4s or GS5 archaeological technicians if they were working for the federal government. And um, and we were lucky that we, we got the money to do this, right? And so we use that model. And we're not suggesting that that model works all the time. We recognize that there are a lot of pitfalls with this. What we were suggesting is that we as the field need to come up with more, maybe more creative solutions and kinds of partnerships where we can pay students to travel to these things. Mm -hmm. And the reason, and it's it's not, it's a good idea to like pay their way for stuff, right? So like, it's great. It's really, really great if you can pay their room and board. It's even better if you pay them. And the reason it's even better if you pay them is because even if they're getting their room and board paid for, if they're gone for a month of the summer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what a DPA mission is, it's the month of your summer and you require the summer to work so that you can pay for school, mm -hmm. you've lost out on money. Yeah. And when you've lost out on money like that, you won't be able to go anyway mm -hmm. because you can't pay, you can't get back the lost wages. Mm -hmm. And so this is really, really important. And the other thing about it is that it's not, the other thing we were arguing, and there are a lot of people who once again have argued this way more persuasively than I have. This, um, this field school, right? It's, well, it's not a field school, right? That's the other thing. It's a contract model. It's not a field school. Yeah. Um, they're not paying to be there. It's a month long, right? Which is way different than like six week program or seven week program or an eight week program, right? Even my field school that I run, which is, which is bioarchaeologically focused, right? It's two weeks of digging and two weeks of intensive osteology. So um, just to give students sort of like the, the basics, because mm -hmm. a lot of mine, they're not, high-level osteologists, yeah. most of them are undergrads. And even that's only four weeks. Yeah. And the reason it's only four weeks is because people need to work in the summer. Yeah. Right. They need to work in the summer or they need to do other things. It can mm -hmm. also be very hard to like be away from your spouse if you're a non-traditional student or be away from your kids for longer periods of time than that. Yeah. And so we we work in June. So they have July and August to, you know, do the other things they need to do. And uh, that's for many reasons, but, you know, trying to come up with these ways of thinking like, okay, how do we make this more equitable? Yeah. It's really because, because if, when we don't make things equitable, we, we shut people out of the field who would be really, really great in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's happened too much in the past. Like we, we want to grow and build as a field and we want to have there be more diverse voices and opinions in the field. And if we don't implement things such as this, it, it, it's it's so difficult. So that was part of the reason I know you said other people have argued it better, but I appreciated that it's something that you're passionate about. And I wanted to talk about that because the more we talk about even the little things that we can do to make the field more accessible, hopefully the more that people will be inspired. The other thing that we noted, and we think that this is probably true in other situations too, just from like talk, just like anecdotally from talking to friends of mine about say like working on CRM projects, because mm -hmm. we run it kind of like you would run a CRM project, Yeah, um, which, which is how a lot of DPA emissions feel like. They feel more like CRM projects. Here's a shovel, right? I'm not handing you trowels, mm -hmm. right? I am not going to hand you a trowel and a measuring tape and you're not digging down in 10 centimeter increments, right? All the mm -hmm. time, like you would in academic archeology. span um, one of the things that we noted, and we've talked to, we, I've, I at least have talked to other people who are in like CRM, is the professionalization for our crew was really good. 
right? They were getting paid. They knew what time, what what the day, what the hours were. They were getting paid. We had no weird internal conflicts, mm-hmm. no knocking off because this is field school and then the rest of the day is yours, right? They were there to work and yeah. they worked and they got along well. And they were incredibly professional as a crew because we paid them. And we treated them like they were a professional field crew because they were. Yeah. And so we found that to be very, very useful. And that's, by the way, not a dig at field school models. Obviously, run a field school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. It's not meant to be like, here is the best solution. It's just here is a solution. Mm-hmm. For sure. And not it just opens up the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Opens up the conversation. So I really appreciate, you know, that we got to we got to touch on that. Um, and I want to kind of take, take us back to your current work at the university of Idaho. Um, so let's start with, as we start to like wind down our conversation, what's your favorite class to teach there? Or what is a class that you would like to teach that you haven't had the opportunity to yet? Oh man. I don't know if you want to open this, this box, Gabriella. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I do. Uh, (laughs) I do. So I, um, I'm a very different type of anthropologist than my predecessor was. Uh, we just do very, very different things. He was a he was a paleoanthropologist, right? I am not a paleoanthropologist. I can mm-hmm. teach paleoanthropology with the best of them. I am not a paleoanthropologist. Yeah. And so when I got here, I changed the curriculum around a lot. Just because there are certain things that he taught, I just can't teach. I don't have the kind of skills to do that, which meant I added a bunch of new classes. Mm-hmm. So I've changed our curriculum quite a bit. And so there are two classes that I teach that are my favorites. I always, I think my students will laugh because they're like literally every class you teach, you're like, this is my favorite, but these are actually my two favorite classes. Okay. Uh, Modern War and Conflict course, the Anthropology of Modern War and Conflict, which is a course that I developed. And then a Health, Illness and Society course that I also developed, which is mostly medical anthropology. So okay. this is sort of like all of my interests and in all of the things, right? Because yeah. I'm very interested in like, sort of how warfare and conflict and violence influence societies. And I work and I spend most of my career working with modern things. So I don't teach like, even though I could now teach about like, I don't know, I old, you know, old warfare, Roman conflicts and, and Greek conflicts. And I don't know, uh, the War of the Roses or something like that. I actually couldn't teach about the War of the Roses. I don't know enough, but um but I've only, I'm, I teach about modern conflicts. So it starts, we do talk about indigenous conflicts in the Americas pre-contact, because I do think that's important. And also because we're in North America. Um, and then from there, we skip to the Civil War. And then we go from the Civil War all the way up to um, Cambodia and Rwanda, mm-hmm. Bosnian conflicts, things that are international conflicts that students don't learn very much about. Yeah. So you know, I, I were like, Cambodia was like never taught to me in high school history or like it was two sentences in my high school textbook and I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Right. And so we talk about those kinds of things. I think they're really, really useful. I never have enough time to get through everything. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are so many things that I'd love to talk about that I never get to just because we only have 16 weeks a semester. Yeah. And so, and I teach like, Candidly, because of my of my areas interest of interest, I teach three weeks on World War II, European theater, Pacific theater, Holocaust, right? So each one of them is a week, and it's a seminar style class. It's a number division class, so it's a seminar style class. 
they we do it by event. So usually they're learning about one particular conflict per week. There's usually three to four readings. They write me some questions based upon those readings, which is how I evaluate and make sure that they're doing the reading because otherwise it's very hard to have a seminar class. And yes. then we just, I give them a lecture and we talk about things. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because it can get you, I could get you into a lot of different conversations, right? So like I made them read, for example, I make them read a piece about museums, right? There's so many pieces about museums, but I make them read, um, I make them read a piece about the National Museum of Health and Medicine, actually, many, which is in DC. Um, mm. And many, many, many moons ago, I helped them move their collections. But I'm <laughs> um, just talking about um, the remains of people who were in the Civil War whose remains are still in that museum. I, and I make them read about the whole debacle about exhibiting the Enola Gay, right? Which was the plane, if people are who are not, is not familiar, there was the plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And where was that on display or is it was supposed to be on display at the Smithsonian? Oh, and uh, there was a whole uproar about how that exhibit was created and the message it sent. Yeah, so there were scientists who were like, Look, we have to talk about the aftermath of dropping a nuclear bomb on people, right? This is incredibly problematic, right? Yeah. The nuclear age is incredibly problematic. Yeah. And then there were veterans groups who said, this is all negative, right? It says basically like what these guys did, it, it completely erases their heroism and it's all negative and it's all about the aftermath of the bombing. And it doesn't talk about the fact, or it doesn't talk enough about the fact that at the time, the argument was, this is the only way to win the war. And mm. if we send all of our boys over there, they're going to die. Mm. And so there was an incredible conflict. There's some there's some really great articles about this incredible conflict that erupted in the, yeah. about the museum's exhibit, right? Whose voice is being prefaced here? Mm -hmm. And like, that's what museums are really good for, right? They're, they're really good for telling stories like this. Mm -hmm. And so teaching a course like that's really fun because you can have a lot of really incredible theoretical debates, some mm -hmm. really good methodological debates, like is what this person doing, are the methods they're using ethical, do they work? Yeah. Are they actually telling us anything? And then also just like some very interesting, you know, long-term ethical debates, right? Should we be displaying the Enola Gay? Um, do we need to go diving in places like off Chuk Lagoon in uh you know in in South in on in Oceania, where if you go diving, you'll see the remains of kamikaze pilots because the reef there is just airplanes and ships that were destroyed by the Americans. Mm. People dive there all the time. Mm -hmm. They do. And they take pictures mm. of those dead pilots. <sighs> and right, which is a huge ethical dilemma. Yeah. And and they disturb those places. And it's it's, you know, it's a question of are those dive sites? Are they graves? And I don't know the answer to that. It's a really complicated question. But yeah. a class like that's really fun because then you get to have those conversations. You get to have conversations about should this be a UNESCO World Heritage Site? How do we decide what something when something is a UNESCO World Heritage Site? Should every Holocaust memorial be a World Heritage Site? And the answer, according to UNESCO, is no, because there are too many of them, right? So Auschwitz is one. 
but you couldn't do it for every single thing, right? And so like, we get to talk about that debate, like, right, how do you preserve something like Auschwitz? Should yeah. you? Should you do ideas for people who were killed in the Holocaust because Jewish law says you shouldn't, mm. right? Jewish law says you do not disturb burials. Mm. That was and, you know, you could, you could try, but the World Jewish Congress would have a field day with you. And they have in the past, you know, but those are important, right? Yeah. And terrifying, mm. but important. Graduate seminar on bodies, right? That's what I'm teaching right now, right? And we're talking about this sort of same ideas. My students just read an entire week on human skin books. If you didn't know, that's a thing. Made mostly by doctors, not by Nazis. This is always the thing. People always assume they're made by Nazis. They're mostly made by 19th century doctors. And, you know, just like something, talking about those kinds of ethical debates or like, how do we make better medical personnel? How do we make better geneticists? How do we make people understand like there can be disparities or discrimination on healthcare systems? Um, How do NGOs work, right? What do they do? Uh, they read a lot of, you know, sort of books about these things like Ebola outbreaks and, you know, why, why that's so terrifying. Um, I make some read some Paul Farmer who talks a lot about sort of disparities in healthcare and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of how, how the quote unquote developing world isn't getting the care that it needs or just even talking about, okay, this is why the overuse of antibiotics is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how do you get multi-drug resistant, uh, you know, uh, drugs? Mm-hmm. All of that just really made me think about what the role of anthropologists is and how important educating young aspiring anthropologists in a wide range of things. Sadly, that in those two cases had connections to actual events going on at the time. And as, as, and I want to make it clear that both of, you know, obviously the pandemic and the tragedy there were both extremely, extremely um, tragic events that affected a lot of people directly and indirectly. But it's also part of, in my opinion, anthropo- an anthropology professor's job provide tools for helping understand on a different level those tragedies um so that those students should they pursue anthropology in their futures be able to understand these horrible tragedies that happen throughout human history not just in modern day um yeah i'm not i'm not trying to be political here let me be very clear okay (laughs) yeah Knowledge should make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It should. It should make you uncomfortable because a lot of it is super, super uncomfortable. Yes. It should make you think. It should mm-hmm. make you think twice. It should make you say to yourself, well, I hope that never happens again. How do yeah. I ensure that that never happens again? Yeah. Right. Learning about historical events that are monstrous is important. It is, yeah. And I'm really not trying to be political about this, right? This is important because this is how we learn things, Mm -hmm. right? I spend a ton of my time teaching people about violent actions, right? Why Mm -hmm. did this happen? How does this impact people? You know, the project I'm working on right now in Bulgaria 
what I'm interested there is, so are these migrants, if they are, did they assimilate into the population or, did, or was there violent action? Aristotle indicates that there was some violent action, talks about it. He says, this is not a smooth transition in the fifth century, but we don't know that that's true. I know that I have plenty of instances of serious guild traumas. Gabrielle, I should send you pictures because you're like, you would be like, wait, how, how is that blunt force trauma? How did that person possibly survive? Huge, just to the back of the skull, going all the way through the squamosal suture and popping it out because it was so massive and healed. Oh. And, you know, so we know that there's evidence that of heel trauma in these populations. We also know if we're looking at things and creating analogies, when you have migrant populations that come to other communities, there's often friction, right? Mm -hmm. Those people are subjugated. They are, in some cases, they're annihilated. In some cases, they annihilate the colony they go to, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so these are not smooth transitions. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can get all kinds of things, right? You can get colonialism where um, the population that comes and wipes out the local population, or they enslave them or subjugate them. You can get populations where those migrants are being subjugated and possibly subjected to things like structural violence, where the mm -hmm. state discriminates against them to the point where nobody notices. Mm -hmm. uh, we know historically that that happens. And so all of this is important. Why? Because we've done this over and over and over again throughout time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's so easy to think that the past is like, right, bioarchaeology, like, why do we care? Right. Like, this is this is so old. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. I got asked this a ton during my Ph.D. work. Well, it's the Second World War. Who cares? And I was like, literally everybody in that country cares about this. Yeah. And the reason is, is because. The Second World War foments a lot of the support for ultranationalism in the late 80s and early 90s. And the reason is, is because a lot of people in the former Yugoslavia get killed in really gruesome ways during the Second World War, right? There are reports, for example, and um, mostly Serbs, to be honest, um, there are reports that the Serb community, and that people in the Serb community are, things happen to them like they are thrown down ravines alive and just left to die there. Um, they're burned inside their churches, Awful. right? They, there's a huge amount of hostage taking and reprisal, right? So you kill 30 Germans, they shoot 100 civilians. Mm. It's, and it's mostly, um, and there's a, there's a civil aspect to this, right? Where like certain aspects of the ethnic and uh, religious population are on one side and mm. certain aspects of the ethnic and religious population are on the other side. And then people switch sides throughout the war. It's very, very complicated. Mm. And but people use this, right? They talk about this in the late 80s and early 90s, and there are several historians, some archaeologists and anthropologists who've written about this, um, and, po and political scientists as well, who've talked about the fact that, you know, dead people are really important to living people, particularly in the Balkans, really, really important to them. And during socialism, they were not allowed to bury any of their dead people who died during the Second World War. And so it festers, right? It just sits there and it festers. And it also becomes a game of telephone, right? Where if you're not allowed to talk about something, people talk about it clandestinely, right? They talk about it in secret among themselves. Yeah. And when that happens, the story changes over and over yes. and over again. And a lot yeah. of the time it gets worse. And so in the 90s, you see them doing, or the late eaters, you see them doing these exhumations of people who were killed in the war, right? A lot of them are civilians. 
some of them are soldiers, right? Because the, when the socialists are winning in 1944, they turn around and they kill 100,000 people, roughly. That's that's the rough estimate. Statistics are a little iffy right now. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of whom are Croat soldiers who fought for the Reich. Mm. And they do things like throw them in mass graves, right? throw them in pits. And so everybody is looking at their unburied, quote unquote, victimized population and using that as a way to implement support for particular nationalist agendas, right? Look at what these people did. They're mm. monsters, right? Mm. Genocide is completely justified. Ethnic cleansing, quote unquote, which is just genocide, um, is completely justified because these people are monstrous. Mm. And so we tend to think of the past as like, oh, well, it was on the past. It's not though, yeah. right? So like that war, you know, it's it was 20 some years ago, but it's was but it's very very fresh in the mind of everybody who lives there, and mm -hmm. the Second World War was like a week ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it, the conception of time and memory is so different. It is, and I think Americans it's it's very different than us because we're a much younger country, and mm -hmm. so like these things they get brought up over and over and over again and used as ways of rationalizing things or talking about things right and so and so the reality is like things that happened in the past happen in the present now yeah like, we're still dealing with migrant crises we're dealing with them yes. all over the world yes <laughs> so yeah th this is this has all happened before it is yeah and so bioarchaeologically it's really useful to talk about this like you know i i know plenty of people who do things like talk about health in like poor houses right yeah and those things are really, really important because they still go on. Mm -hmm. And they're a really good way of looking at like, okay, there's lots of really great things about industrialization, but there's also a lot of really bad things about them. And here are yes. some of those. Yes. I don't want to be like the biggest Debbie Downer ever just because I study some things that are, you know, but I also find a lot of joy in what I do. And I think that we also learn a lot of really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And getting to tell the stories that maybe, um, were suppressed or mm -hmm. suppressed from certain a certain group um is, yeah. is a really powerful thing that you're able to do with the work that you do and I'm really thankful that like here at the end we got to dive like even more in depth into that because your point is very well received and very very important well I mean history we talk a lot about this right why why do archaeology if you have history why bother, right? I make my 101 students answer this question, right? And my 100 level students do, right? Like they, why do, why, why, like this comes up all the time. We've written records. Why would we do any archaeology? And it's like, well, written records, first of all, they leave people out. Yes. Right? <laughs> they, they're written by specific people. And if you don't think other people count, they don't write about you. Yeah. And then, or they write about you in a very specific way, right? You're in a manifest as opposed to journals or books about you mm -hmm. and the other thing is history is written by people who win yes <laughs> yes <laughs> like history is written by winners uh -huh. and even if you're a historian it can be very dangerous to write histories that people don't like mm -hmm. we're seeing this even now right it can be very dangerous to write a history that someone doesn't like or that contradicts what they think they know about history yes that and but archaeologists are really good at that. Archaeologists and bioarchaeologists are really good at being like, hey, so the historical record says this, but actually, 
This is not the way it was. And here's how we know. Because the people who wrote this had a particular agenda. They wanted to blame these people. They wanted to absolve themselves from that. Or they simply didn't care about this group of people and didn't write about them. Yes. Um, or, you know, they're a minoritized or subjugated group. They're women, kids, mm -hmm. right? There's just way less information about them depending upon the society because sometimes it's not as important. I mean, there's tons and tons and tons written about the Greeks and Romans, but they only wrote about certain people. Yes. Yes. And so we spend a lot of time with archaeology because it's a lot of the time it supplements information we already know which is great because then we're verifying truths mm -hmm. and then it also contradicts whatever hegemonic dom dominant narrative we have right you know i've butted up against against dominant narratives in certain places a bunch of times where you know someone has said well it was this and you're like yeah but it's not that <laughs> like yeah. that's not how this works yeah and i'm being vague here on purpose but no that's fine <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, you know, like, okay, yeah, that, that might be true. But in this case, actually, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And like, that's, that can be a little dangerous, but it's also dangerous as an archaeologist, particularly if you're dealing with things that are historic, that people really like living people remember, or that they care about, or that they reference. Um, or even ancient things where like, people want to say, these are our ancestors, even if they're not. Um, and uh, let me be very clear. That had nothing to do with North America. Okay. So I was like, I, I feel like the way that that statement could be interpreted, that doesn't have anything to do with Native American or North American uh, archaeology at all. That's not where okay. I was going with it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you need to talk to indigenous stakeholders every single time you do anything. But, yes. uh, you know, like just in terms of dealing with, you know, this is the way things were. And then you're like, yeah, but is it though? Like sometimes that's mm -hmm. true, but in a lot of cases, it's not. Or yeah. it's true for the people who get written about. It's mm -hmm. actually not true for this group of people. Yes. And so archaeology is really great for just supplementing what we know about history. And then also just like getting rid of terrible myths that just aren't true yes yeah it it's so important and and thank you so much for for talking about all of that I I really enjoyed getting to speak with you about this and getting to meet you and I think everything that you're saying is is just so important we could talk for hours more on this mm -hmm. and I I specifically want to say thank you because I mentioned at the top of the app well before we started recording to you that I am doing my thesis podcast uh, my thesis project is going to be a podcast which this is the second time I'm not mentioning it in the podcast so I the listeners are going to know now but I've really something that I've been struggling with I struggling is I guess a bit harsh of a term um contemplating is what I want the guiding question of this thesis podcast to be since it is such an untraditional format for a, a thesis project and something that in the last couple of weeks that's really really stood out to me is why do we do bioarchaeology why do we do it who is it for and and ultimately should we do it um, I think yes, but I, I really, and this, just this last like 30 minutes really cemented in my head, 
why I do want that to be the core question of it. I mean, I guess it's several questions, but core theme of it, investigative topic, because I think it is really important to talk about because, for example, both in a general audience and in an audience of anthropologists, because anthropology, as you know, is such a diverse field. There are so many different anthropologists that do different things. It's, and and then with, with um, the changing ethics that is happening, um, the ethical reckoning, there's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for, that's happening right now in bioarchaeology, I think it is so important to talk about. And the more I have these conversations with people, the more I'm cemented in that. I think that that is the most important thing that I want to talk about in that. So I'm, I really appreciate that, not only for the listeners, I'm sure that they all got something from this, but as I told you, you know, the podcast for me has also been personally very enlightening and, and has helped me kind of guide me. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time. Um, sure. It was so great to chat with you. No, I, I think there are a couple of things to think about with what you just said. Yeah. One, how is my work going to be used? Mm. That is always something, I mean, you can't always interpret this, right? It's impossible, but think about it, right? Think about how your work is going to be used. For me, because I was doing historical work that mattered to so many people, I had to think about it, right? It would have been, for me at least, ethically irresponsible to not think about things like this. Yeah. Um, so think about like, who are your stakeholders? How is your work gonna be used? And how could your work potentially be twisted to help people that you didn't intend to help? Because mm-hmm. I think that's important, right? I knew about the history of ultranationalism in the community that I was going to. I had to think about and reckon with that before I did what I wanted to do, even though I had the permissions to do it from the people who were most vested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's important. And I think the other thing is talk to the stakeholder community. Yeah. Like don't <laughs> assume that all stakeholder communities are monolithic, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to the individuals who are involved in the thing that you want to look at and the project you want to do. Ask mm-hmm. yourself why you're doing it. Are you doing it for the right reasons? And then if that community wants that thing done, well, then listen to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for me, it's really interesting to talk about sort of these ethical reckonings because I don't work in North America. Yeah. I have worked in North America, um, but I don't work in North America anymore. Mm-hmm. And my stakeholder community doesn't understand anything about the way that North American bioarchaeology works. In mm-hmm. fact, the way they perceive things is incredibly diametrically opposed. Mm-hmm. And so you're dealing with stakeholder communities who have very, very different ideas about the dead. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And you you go with what the stakeholder community views about the dead, yeah. right? And, you know, the, the people that I work with, where I work in the world, mm-hmm. you can't, you trip over dead people all the time. They're everywhere. Yeah, Most of the time, Freda they're in the way that. of your building project. Freda and... always says that. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. She is absolutely right. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Why? Because Europe is just way, way, way older than the United States. Yeah. And also because it's a smaller area, right? Like there have been, there have been indigenous communities in the Americas for forever. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but it's just a different, it's a different way of dealing with things. Mm -hmm. And so they, 
don't have the same cosmological associations to their dead. Mm -hmm. And so they don't view them the same way. Yeah. And so you, you work with what you have, right? And for example, they are not, they're not uncomfortable with images, for example. Mm, yes. In fact, they expect you to have them so they can understand what it is you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the idea that someone would make you take an image of the skeleton down mm -hmm. or you with a skeleton down doesn't make any sense to them, mm -hmm. right? They don't understand it. It doesn't compute. It's not part of their cosmology or their way of, or their ontology, their way of doing things or their epistemology. And so that's very different than working in North America, right? Where you really do have to seriously consider those things and you should. So it really depends. That's why, that's why talking to the stakeholder community is so important yeah. because it really depends upon the context and also just the types of dealings that people have had with bioarchaeologists and archaeologists, which unfortunately mm -hmm. in a lot of cases have been bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have been bad interactions. Yeah. And, you know, and unfortunately for some people that's still ongoing mm -hmm. and, you know, which is why it's important to talk to the people who have the closest connection to those remains. And if they tell you they don't want something done, don't do it. Yep. it I, I think I'm making it more simple than it actually is to be fair. <laughs> I think a lot of this is actually really, really complicated yeah. and I'm oversimplifying it. But, um, but my point is that like, it can't be a one size fits all narrative yes because not everybody has the exact same cosmology or belief system or mm -hmm. ideals that's why it's really important to talk to the people who are the most invested in what it is you're doing a lot of whom aren't scientists which is why podcasts like this are important thank you <laughs> right thank you. you know i know i know christina kilgrove has beating this horse over and over and over again as she should right and I have a whole week on this for my bioarchaeology class talking to people who aren't bioarchaeologists about what you do is important yeah and talking to them in a way that makes sense to them is important which is why I appreciated when I like used an acronym and I didn't think about it you were like this is this thing yeah and I tried throughout this to make sure that I was like indicating what things are yeah. I'm not I don't know if I was always successful at it but right like like explaining what we do to people who don't do this thing is a really good way to make sure that things that we do don't end up in really strange places or with weird headlines, you know, yes. claiming things that aren't true yes. um, or like a scientist says one offhand thing and it gets misinterpreted and then becomes clickbait. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because we're not great at communicating with the public. Mm -hmm. We need to be better at it. I yeah. need to be better at it. I know that for sure. I think yeah. everybody needs to be better at it, which is why it's good to have podcasts and, you know, and writing for scientific magazines that are not designed for, you know, people with PhDs. I mean, uh -huh. I have a PhD and half the time when I read something in science, I'm like, I don't know what this means. Yeah. I think and... appreciate the tagline. I mean, it's, it's not like official. It's just more like kind of a joke I've been making about my podcast project, thesis project is uh, that bioarchaeology has a PR problem and this podcast is going to help with that. Hopefully. I mean, we do. I mean, my father's a journalist. I know a lot about PR um, yeah. and we do have a bit of a PR problem. Some of which is, I'll be honest, actually a lot of which is entirely self-reflective, <laughs> self-created. <laughs> 
little bit. <laughs> you know, we do. We'd, we'd, we could be much better about managing our own discipline in a way not to because I don't want I don't want it to sound like we're trying to spin our image because I don't think that's true. No. Just being more transparent about what it is we do. Yes. Because people and, like what we do. They're really interested in what we do. They have a lot of wrong opinions about what we do. Not yeah. as many wrong opinions as there are about forensics. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Um, I've kept you way too long. <laughs>